Okay, hi, this is Mike Billington with the Executive Intelligence Review, the Schiller Institute and the LaRouche Organization. I'm here with uh, Dr. George Koo, uh, who is uh, one of the leading um, uh, Chinese American writers, organizers on US-China policy and on the relations to uh, of, of Chinese Americans in the United States, especially the persecution over these last years of Chinese Americans and Chinese in the US, which we'll discuss. Um, would you like to say a few words about your own history, uh, Dr. Ku, where you, when you came and your education and your career? Sure, thank you. And Mike, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be with you. I, I started a draft of my um, autobiography and my working title is best of both worlds mm -hmm. and and by that i mean for my first 11 years in china which is in the probably one of the worst period of china war-torn china i was fortunate i never saw a single japanese soldier and uh, i was never lived under the japanese occupation with all its brutality and uh, inhumanity, what happened was my parents were um, affiliated, graduated and affiliated with Shaman University. And the leaders of that university in its wisdom knew that the harbor, the Shaman Harbor was too strategic to be, to be not occupied by the Japanese troops. So in 1937, they picked up and moved, I think roughly 200 miles interior into the interior part of Fujian province. And um, China is very mountainous and 200 miles is actually quite a appreciable distance away from Xiamen. And as a consequence, the Japanese never saw the knee or the, or the um, strategic need to occupy where Xiamen was, which was a very small hamlet called uh, Changding, and I was born there. And because of that, I actually had a very um, nurturing, peaceful uh, uh, upbringing by my parents. And I was actually a couple of years ahead of myself in, in, the, uh, in going to uh, the grammar school. And when the war was over and we moved back to Xiamen, um, I went back a year because all my fellow students were five, five years older than I am because they were interrupted by the war. And when I came to the U.S., I had actually graduated from sixth grades, which gave me a nice foundation on not only the Chinese language, but also an appreciation of the Chinese culture and uh, Chinese history. And I was fortunate because when I came to Seattle, well, first of all, I should go back. My father had already been uh, uh, gotten a fellowship to, uh, from the um, nationalist government. Uh, they used some of the uh, war reparation from Japan to send some of their uh, students to continue their graduate uh, education after World War II and my father was, was among them. So he was in Seattle already 
and he was continuing his graduate studies in, um, he was trained as a marine biologist and he was in University of Washington to study fisheries. And, <coughs> excuse me, in 1949, a lot of these um, divided families where the scholar is in the US for further education and the family stayed behind on the mainland, they all had to make a crucial decision whether they were gonna leave US and go back to China, or they were gonna try to find the fam get the families to go to the US, or they would face a uncertain period of separation. And we were fortunate that we were able to uh, immigrate to the US in uh, 1949. And I was 11 at the time, uh, didn't know a word of English, but the Seattle public school system was really, really outstanding. And we didn't, <clears throat> we didn't lose, didn't feel that we had to go to a private school. So I was brought up through the Seattle public school. I caught up in my English by the time I graduated from high school, was fortunate enough to get a partial scholarship and work program to attend MIT. And so I went to MIT um, for graduate for bachelor's and master's degree, uh, got married. My wife was uh, similarly a Chinese American who actually came to the US when she was, um, I think six years old. And um, we met at MIT at graduate school. And uh, I joined Boeing, worked at Boeing on their Saturn project. And then subsequently I left to join Ally Chemical, continued my graduate school um, and doc got my doctorate degree at um, Stevens Institute of Technology. And that's the, pretty much my early part of my um, career. Um, I joined SRI in conducting what we call industrial economic research from there, I moved on and joined Chase Bank and subsequently Bear Stearns to work on China trade advisory business. So, so for an appreciable period of time, I was helping American business, doing business in China, establishing uh, business relationships, and also negotiate joint venture contracts, cooperation, and so on. So from that basis, I developed some very basic understanding of China, how China worked, where they're coming from. And, uh, and then as we, as we got early, later and later into the relationship, I could see that there's a tremendous gap in understanding between China and the US. And I sort of took it upon myself to, as a role to help bridge the understanding between the two countries. And, and that's where I began to write about U.S.-China relations and, and, and so on. And this is, I guess, what we'll talk about today. Right. Good. Thank you. <laughs> A lot of that I didn't know. I'm glad to learn that about, about you. Um, in your, you. You spoke at the Schiller Institute conference uh, on yeah. November 13th, uh, and your presentation was called The Survival of Our World Depends on Whether the U.S. and China Can Get Along. Uh, you noted there that the 
Chinese economy is now larger than the US by certain kinds of accounting. And that the US response has been what you said was to push China's head underwater rather than trying to compete on its own. So uh, I concur with you on that. What, what, do you, what would you say is the economic and technological impact of that policy, both on China, but also on the US? Well, I, it, it's a, it's, unfortunately, it's a zero sum approach that the US is taking. Um, it assumes that by taking this approach, that the US will win at the ex expense of China and that China will lose. But what will actually happen, of course, in a zero sum approach is that each side will try to endeavor to win at the expense of the other. And the, the eventual outcome is lose-lose. Every Both sides lose. It's arguable whether um, China will lose more than the US. And, and, and the reason I say that is because China has a much more vibrant, healthy trading relationship with virtually all parts of the world compared to the US. So, so economically, they have a lot more uh, reach and, uh, and flexibility. Secondly, it's, it goes without saying that China has a very complete, robust manufacturing base, which we do not. Um, we are, have already emptied out our manufacturing base and for Trump to impose a tariff barrier and, and, and presume that that will bring the manufacturing base back is, um, very wrongheaded, and it shows his, I guess, ignorance on what basic principles of economics looks like. I don't find and I don't expect that very many uh, manufacturing will come back unless the economics is, um, is basically favorable. And, uh, and as um, you know, the, 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 the Trump's at the time, the justify, justification for the tariff barriers was that that was going to be, quote, free money coming back to the U.S. Treasury and the Chinese exporters was going to pay for it. And of course, that was far from reality. What reality is that the increased prices the American consumers ends up paying for. So it's not free money. It's coming out of one pocket and going to the other. Um, and, uh, and that just raises the cost of living. So I, I, there's no question that by separating or attempting to separate the two um, economic sphere of influence, if you will, that both will lose. And it's a, uh, I'm not at all sure that the, the US will come out ahead in a lose-lose outcome. Hmm. You are also the head of something called the Burlingame Foundation, which is named after Anson Burlingame, the uh, American diplomat in China who actually ended up representing China. Could you discuss a bit about his career when there was uh, an attempt by the US to establish uh, good relations with China, who was at that time under the boot of the British? Yep, okay. Well, you know, it's about maybe 13, 
13 years ago that I happened to catch <clears throat> in a local, very small local newspaper that covers the city of Burlingame. And in there, the Burlingame Historical Society wrote about the life of Anson Burlingame. And that's the first time I heard about him. And that's the first time I learned that the city of Burlingame was named after him. So I read up about it and, um, and I was fascinated because here is somebody who was um, a, a um, dedicated abolitionist, anti-slavery, um, who places the highest importance on human rights and human dignity. And he was one of the founders of the Republican Party and a um, energetic, vigorous supporter of, um, of uh, Abraham Lincoln for, and, and helped getting Lincoln elected. And he worked so hard that he, he lost his own reelection as a congressman from uh, Massachusetts. And so Lincoln offered to appoint him as an ambassador first to the Austria-Hungary uh, Austria uh, Empire. And the, Austri the Austrian government didn't want Berlingame. Berlingame was very vocal about the suppression of the Hungarians by the Austrian, uh, uh, Austrian emperor. So he was persona grata from the get-go. So then Lincoln appointed him to be ambassador to China. He left US about 1861, but he took his time, landed in Hong Kong and went up China gradually so that he can learn more about the Chinese culture, the Chinese people, the Chinese history. By the time he got to Beijing it was already uh, 1862. But he made his stand very clear that China's sovereignty was to be respected and that he was not there to represent US to carve up China, unlike the British and other Western powers that were based there. So he was very outspoken on what is fair and how to deal with, um, with China from a US point of view. And in fact, Somebody that was um, <clears throat> some American was accused of murdering some Chinese nationals while he was ambassador, and he had him arrested, and he caught he had um, 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 presided over his trial, and he accepted witnesses from China, Chinese witnesses, which is unheard of if you were a, a British court or a French court or some of the others, and then he. Uh, pronounced him guilty and sentenced him to be executed. Um, I think he never got executed because he escaped, but that's a different story. All of that <clears throat> very impressed upon the regent behind the throne. Uh, his name was uh, Prince Gong, Gong Qingwang in Chinese. But Prince Gong was so impressed with Anson Burning Game and his, his uh, integrity um, that uh, when Burlingame was all set to return to China, uh, to return to the U.S., and that would have been uh, 1867, Prince Gong went to see him and said, Mr. Burlingame, we need to go to the Western countries and try to renegotiate 
the various unequal treaties that we have been uh, imposed upon. And we have a team all set to go, but we need someone of international stature to lead this group. Would you be willing to lead it? So Burning immediately accepted the appointment, wrote a letter to his boss, the Secretary of State Seward, and said, hey, I'm, I'm coming back, but I'm coming back as the ambassador from China. And, and that's what happened. He came to the uh, US in uh, early 1868, took the train that the Chinese had built, the railroad, the Transcon Railroad, celebrated all along the way, got to Washington and negotiated a treaty called the now shorthand, we call it the Burning Game Treaty of 1868. That treaty recognizes the, not the mutual sovereignty, the equal rights of citizens from one country living in the other, the uh, mutual immigration rights to immigrate from one to the other. It was the first treaty that China enjoyed with the Western countries of that kind. And that set a different relationship between US and China that um, had lasting effects, even though the exclusion principle of eight, uh, the exclusion laws of 1888 cancel the Burning Game Treaty. Now, one of the lasting effects was the Chinese education mission that, that was organized and came over, I think starting in 1871. And the reason, and this, uh, this mission was organized by a guy by the name of Rong Hong, or in Cantonese, uh, Wing Rong, Wing Wing Hong, I think it is. <clears throat> he was um, brought over by American missionaries, and he was actually graduate of Yale. And uh, when he went back, he was entrusted by the uh, Manchu government to be the sort of intermediary between um, U.S. and um, and China, and he brought. Uh, some mission munition plant, uh, turnkey plant from the U.S. to China, and he convinced the one of the senior officials there that we should send that China should send young boys like somewhat like him to the U.S. and get edu a U.S. education, and through a lot of effort in his part, he convinced families and mostly these are families in the Guangzhou area to send 120 boys to the US to be educated. And these were sent 30 boys a year over a four year period. The first batch landed in um, 1871. And they were all 12, 13 years old, if you can imagine. And when they ended up in Connecticut uh, in New England, they were being hosted by mostly Christian families in their area and educated in American schools. And then some of them uh, were old enough to attend college, such as MIT, Yale. Mostly a lot of them went to Yale because of Hong Kong and Columbia and some of the best schools uh, in the East Coast. 
Now, it only lasted four years, and um, and the, the third and fourth year batch of uh, young kids never got to finish, never got to finish or even attend college because the internal politics of China uh, was um, became um, you know very negative about watching these young Chinese kids becoming to quote too Americanized and and losing their Chinese roots and Chinese culture. So they brought them back and interrupted their um, their education. But nevertheless, this group of Western educated young Chinese later on went on to have a tremendous amount of influence, especially after the, the, the fall of the Manchu dynasty and in the Republican government. One of them <clears throat> who was actually a um, outstanding, outstanding baseball pitcher and hitter when he was in the US was appointed ambassador to, um, to Washington. So he was a Chinese ambassador to Washington. He got to be good friends with Teddy Roosevelt. And he was the one that's convincing President Roosevelt by the time he got to be president that the indemnity funds that the Chinese was paying to the US could be better used by sending it back to train edu and educate Chinese to the American system of education. So some of that money ended up building the Tsinghua University that we now know in Beijing, and also funded uh, some of the um, students, outstanding students from China to be educated in US starting in the 20s, 1920s and 30s and 40s, including my father-in-law, by the way, he went he was sent to get a bachelor's uh, from MIT, a master's from Pennsylvania, and a doctorate from Harvard in, um, in the uh, electrical engineering. The chief engineer for Boeing, John Tzu, he was one of the batch that came in that, um, in that batch. He went to Boeing, designed the first, uh, first um, uh, the uh, seaplane, which the Navy, uh, U.S. Navy bought, and that got Boeing started, and then John Tzu went back to China. But there's a whole list of people that that particular mission created. Now back to back to Burning Game. After he successfully um, negotiated the Burning Game Treaty of 1868, he then took the Chinese delegation and went to Europe, and he visited the um, the British, the French and others trying to convince them that they should do the same. Of course, none of those countries were interested in recognizing China on an on a equal sovereignty basis, but they, would, they didn't also, but they also didn't want to antagonize somebody of burning game stature. So they just sort of fobbed them off and stalled. And eventually he ended up in St. Petersburg in February of 1870. There he contracted pneumonia and died in four days, within four days. He was a few days short of his 50th birthday when he died in the service of China. Interesting. And this story, by the way, is um, pretty much forgotten in, in the US especially, but certainly uh, also in China. But one of the young 
reporters that he befriended on his way to China was a, a, a beginning reporter by the name Sam Clement, who later on, as you know, became Mark Twain. Mm -hmm. And Mark Twain wrote a, the, probably the best eulogy that he uh, on uh, Anson Burlingame when Burlingame died. So the reason for me and some of the others to start the Burning Game Foundation is really to, to remind the people of the world, especially US and China, that there was a point and time in history when the relationship between the two countries you know, is really exemplary and we would like to see it go back to that basis again. Yes, indeed. Well, as you know, but I'll, I'll say a few words for people listening. Uh, Dr. Sun Yat-sen, who was the leader of the overthrow of the Manchu dynasty in 1911, the Republican Revolution, he was not educated in the United States exactly, but he and his brother went from the Guangzhou area to Hawaii to work. Yeah. And he there was taken under the, uh, the uh, care of a uh, missionary family who was part of the Henry Carey School, uh, who had studied the American system of economics under Alexander Hamilton. Uh, and when, when Sun Yat-sen then came back to China and ended up uh, organizing the Republican movement that led to the overthrow of the dynasty and the establishment of the Chinese Republic, his organizing uh, was based, what he called the three principles of the people, was based on the ideas of Abraham Lincoln, who said government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Right. And in particular, uh, understood and taught the American system as it was uh, invented by Alexander Hamilton. And he even understood the factional differences within the United States that Jefferson was, uh, although he wanted independence, was a follower of the British um, laissez-faire system and slavery and so forth. So this, this was uh, Sun Yat-sen's legacy, but that too is generally unknown in the United States. So I'm wondering what you uh, think the impact of Sun Yat-sen in China and in the United States, uh, how that is impacting things today, because it, it's clear that uh, the Chinese economists who are leading the miracle in China today are very, yeah. very familiar with this tradition. Uh, yeah, I think uh, it's fair to say that San Yat-san, or in Chinese, Sun Zhongshan, his influence is continues to be a legacy that is still admired and studied uh, in even in today's China, even though he was um, uh, not a not a um, leader of the Communist Party movement, although during while he was alive, and unfortunately he didn't live very long after the revolution, he wanted to accommodate both the Kuomintang or the Nationalist Party and the Communist Party and wanted them to work together, which was not which was not to be, uh, as we know. No question that his three principles is taken directly from Abraham Lincoln. And he, he was a unabashedly admirer of the American system and the, the democracy as defined by the US. Um, and to, to a large extent, I think, as you said, the, the 
Communist Party since the founding of the PRC um, very much did follow Sun uh, San or Sun's doctrine uh, along the way. Um, I think you know. I, I think one of the um, Hamilton's principle was the protection of homegrown industries through the tar tariff barriers. And I, I think we saw China do that. They, they did protect their homegrown industry. They call them the pillar industry. They would um, protect them from competition up to a certain point. Um, but they also understand that there is a end point to when protective barriers, traffic, uh, tariff barriers cease to be working in their own interest. Now, a lot of other um, emerging countries don't understand that. Once they set up the tariff barrier, they, they don't seem to have the ability or the uh, wherewithal to remove these barriers. And the, the long-term consequence of having tariff barriers forever is to keep your own homegrown industries protected, but never competitive because they're not able to compete in, in an open, uh, open trade situation. Now, we know that China has surpassed that, um, that uh, handicap because once they join the WTO and Premier Zhurongji start to remove the, um, the protection, um, it's a sink or swim situation for the Chinese companies. And those that didn't make it, that sink, are, are absorbed in the Chinese economy. And fortunately, I think the Chinese economy grew fast enough to take up the slack of the, of the under, uh, under or unemployed uh, as a result of having to face uh, world competition. Good. Um, let me address the strategic crisis that we're living through now between the US and China. Yeah. Um, uh, Ambassador Chaz Freeman, who was the uh, interpreter for Richard Nixon on his famous visit to China and went on to have a, an esteemed diplomatic career and, and is a China scholar and expert. In his interview with EIR uh, last month, uh, he, he was, I asked if he, he thought China, uh, China, that the US rather was going beyond the red line of China vis-a-vis -vis the Taiwan situation. Yeah. Uh, beyond the one China, two systems policy by, by backing up the Democratic Progressive Party's policies in Taiwan for calling for independence. And the U.S. appears to be sleepwalking into war, both in the Russia and the China situation, uh, which could be, of course, disastrous for, for mankind. Right. You're very familiar and knowledgeable about the developments in Taiwan. And I'm wondering what you think about how Taiwan got to the point that they're now being used as a as a uh, a lever for a very evil policy. Yeah, well, unfortunately, um, the the party in power in Taiwan, the DPP, probably don't see the situation the way you just <clears throat> enunciated. I think they like to see themselves as a tail trying to wag the dog, and. Um, and unfortunately, the Biden administration, the Trump administration preceding it, 
is trying is encouraging them in on that line of thinking and by that i mean they they are encouraged to help push the line push the push the line in the sand if you will you have to go i think we'll have to go back to when dbp came to power with uh, Chen Shui-bian, the one who was first elected. It's a very strange politics in Taiwan. Chen Shui-bian was elected because it was a bullet that made a right turn and grazed his belly on the last, on the night, of be night before the election <laughs> and also hit, hit his vice president candidate in the knee. It created such a uproar that he, successfully got enough sympathies both to, to put him over and got him elected. Once he's elected, he changed the core curriculum for K through 12 and disconnected the Ch Taiwan history to that of the mainland so that the Taiwan kids growing up no longer know that they're part of Chinese culture, Chinese history, and that their characters and poems and literature came originated from China. So the disenchantment or the disaffectation on the Taiwan people started with um, at Chen Shui-bian or perhaps even from Li Denghui when Li Denghui was president. And gradually it's more, it's the people in Taiwan are more and more detached from any sense of affiliation with the mainland. And that's a very important factor that's happening here. The other thing is that the DPP has very successfully convinced the people of Taiwan that they are infinitely better off than what's going on in the mainland China. Despite the fact that the, if they were fortunate enough to go to Shanghai and go to other places, they could see for themselves what a difference it is. And in fact, the elites, the better educated, better motivated, which is maybe a couple of million of the young Taiwan people, they're living and working in mainland China and they're establishing their career there. And a lot of them, uh, working for Taiwan companies that's based in uh, mainland China. They know the difference, but when they go back to Taiwan on home leave, they can't even talk about it because, because it, the, the, the local Taiwan folks would hoot, would hoot at them and heckle them and don't believe what they're saying. So there's a dichotomy here between Taiwan and the mainland China. Beijing is feel, feels that time is on their side. Eventually, the people in Taiwan will recognize that it's in their benefit to be part of China and not to be trying to be the 51, 51 state of the United States of America, which will never happen, even though um, the DPP seems to be deluded in, in that sense, in that feeling. So is Taiwan a a spark. I think Taiwan could be a spark for, for a war and conflagration if that's what the United States want. If US pushes to the point where Beijing feel that they had to respond, 
then we will have a disaster in our hands. But, you know, as you know, the way our, the situations are being portrayed by our mainstream media and by our political politicians is totally distorted. Whether it's about Taiwan, about Xinjiang, about Afghanistan, about any parts of the world where we have troops and we have bases, somehow we're there to save the world and the, and the Chinese and the Russians are there to destroy the world. Whereas in actual fact, it's just the opposite. You, you mentioned Hong Kong. Um, I know you've been very active in business as well as uh, just knowledge about Hong Kong for a long right. time. Right. And as you know, last year in, in 2020, at the same time that you had rioters in the streets across the United States burning down shops, shopping centers, and attacking police and so on, the same thing was going on in Hong Kong, where masked, black-clad, masked young people were driven to go out and set fires and attack police and so on. And yet this was called in the U.S. press <clears throat> on the Hong Kong side, peaceful protests for democracy. Yeah. Uh, so uh, what, what, is, what is your view of, of the role of Hong Kong today in, in regard to China, as well as in their relations with the, with the West? Okay. <clears throat> I'm, I'm glad you brought it up, Mike, because um, th this is a classic example of fabrication and distortion of what's going on in Hong Kong. The riots in Hong Kong actually occurred about a year before uh, what we have in the US in 2020. The riots in Hong Kong started, I think in 2019, uh, actually. Um, and it all started because a young Hong Kong couple went to Taiwan and the boyfriend murdered the girlfriend who was pregnant at the time. And, cut up her body and put it in a suitcase and then went, went back to Hong Kong by himself. And because there were no extradition treaties between Taiwan and Hong Kong, he basically went home scot-free and was free to roam around the streets. The law enforcement can't do anything about it. So that brought home the point and the need to have an extradition treaty between Hong Kong and rest of the world. And in fact, at the time, Hong Kong was one of the few territories or countries or whatever you want that does not have extradition treaties, um, neither with Taiwan or with Beijing. So when they start, when the um, chief executive of Hong Kong started to enact a extradition treaty, the opposition, the quote unquote democracy movers of uh, Hong Kong objected, created a riot and insisted that they, that they do not have this security treaty because they feel, they claim that with that they could be extradited and they could be arrested and they could be sent to Beijing at any time and they would be threatened. Well, that created the unrest and the riot and what we found out afterwards is that those protesters were being funded by the NED, which is what National Endowment for Democracy, which is a CIA funded uh, arm um, 
whose mission is to create uh, unrest, instability, un and disturbance anywhere in the world, in countries where the um, the power that reigns is not to our liking, and that's what happened in uh, uh, in Hong Kong. The um, uh, it's not it's not only the media not only considered a, a democracy movement. I think one of our leaders, the Speaker of the House, as a matter of fact, publicly said, "What a beautiful sight that was." Well, when the riots happened in the United States, I don't find I didn't find anybody saying that was a beautiful sight. It's clearly a, a destruction and lawlessness and so on. Yeah. So today, what we have in Hong Kong is that we now have an extradition treaty in place. We have a pledge of allegiance to the Beijing government in place. And we have a voter turnout to elect a batch of uh, legislators for the Hong Kong government. All three things are cause for the Western media to criticize and say this is lack of democracy in Hong Kong. Well, let's look at it, okay? The, the voter turnout was very low, was 30% to elect the legislator. This just happened. Well, guess what? The normal turnout in New York City is 26%. So do we, do we say New York City is lack uh, democracy? Well, maybe it does lack democracy, but certainly you won't find mainstream media reporting it on that basis. The um, Pledge of Allegiance. Well, seems to me we, we in school, we pledge allegiance to the flag all the time and nobody complains as being an illegal maneuver. So we're looking at double standards and it's always to the benefit of us looking good and China looking bad. Perhaps the most extreme example of that was when Mike Pompeo began saying that China was guilty of genocide in Xinjiang against the Muslim Uyghur people, yeah. uh, which anybody who would travel to Xinjiang would know how absurd that is. Yeah. Um, but nonetheless, it's repeated in every newspaper, in the Congress, in, and in the White House. What can, you, what can you tell us about the actual economic and social conditions of the Uyghur population in, in Xinjiang? Well, you know, I, there is a purpose to Mike Pompeo and his successor, Blinken, and the media coverage to emphasize, quote unquote, human rights violation in Xinjiang. And to the point that now Biden is actually um, um, forbidding the Americans from buying cotton from Xinjiang. What is the purpose? Well, the purpose is to keep the Uyghurs in Xinjiang poor and underemployed, okay? And why do we do that? Because wherever there's instability, that's what we want. That's how we try to maintain, that's how we, the United States, maintain control. We thrive on instability anywhere else in the world. Well, the, the actual truth, well, I'll give you an example of a distortion. CGTN, which is the China Global Television Network, 
they had a documentary that covered why China had recruited young Uyghur women to go and work in factories in, in, um, in, other, in the cities and other provinces. The idea of employment is income for her, skills to, for, for her to, to uh, make a decent living, raise her living standard to the point that she could even afford to get her parents to move from Xinjiang to, uh, to a better living because Uyghur women in Xinjiang do not get the proper education. They tend to stay home, marry young, have kids, and never have a chance to improve their, their living standard. So the documentary also showed that the first time that she has to leave home to go to a, a faraway city in China, she was crying because it's the first time that she's going to leave home. Well, BBC took that documentary and skillfully cut and paste so that it turns out, it comes out the message is, see, Beijing is exploiting slave labor again, forcing these young women to leave home to work for peon, peon wages somewhere else. Right. Same goes with the picking cotton in Xinjiang, you know, Look at all these poor women picking cotton in Xinjiang. Well, actually, most of the cotton nowadays in Xinjiang are done by, by uh, machines, and the machines are sold by John Deere, very well-known American company. <laughs> so the, there's so much fabrication and distortion going on. And whereas Mike, Mike Pompeo actually was very um, open compared to Blinken, Mike Pompeo said, we lie, we cheat, we steal, come right out and open. Well, Blinken does the same thing, but she, he's a little smoother, so he doesn't say, we lie, we cheat, we steal. But that's what he does. He, he talks about China needs to follow rule-based international order. What is rule-based international order? Well, if you listen to him, it turns out the rule-based international order is whatever he says it is, not by the United Nations or by a multipolar type of a, a, a definition. And, and of course, he has complete continued to parrot the Xinjiang human rights violation. And, um, and I guess, I, I don't know if you're familiar with um, this guy by the name of Adrian Zenz, which is a German right-wing nut who's been to Xinjiang maybe once many years ago and continues to spout all this fabrication about what's going on in Xinjiang. You also have this Australian, I forgot the name of it, some research institute that continues to fabricate reports one after another about what's going on in, uh, in Xinjiang and, and elsewhere in China. We have- It's called ASLI, A-S-L-I. Yeah, yeah. We have a deliberate effort on the, on the part of Washington and on the part of Western media to blacken China for no other purpose than to justify attacking and making everything negative so that American people are thoroughly, thoroughly brainwashed. It's not possible 
for the American public to make a separate judgment. And we don't have any politicians of stature willing to come out and say, hey, we are going down the tubes if we continue on this path, because we're gonna come out lose-lose. Our economy is gonna go in the tank. We're not gonna be benefiting from any collaboration and we're not gonna solve any of the global problems like the pandemic, like the climate change and so on and so forth. You know, and, and so I, I am very, very sad about where we are at this point. And, I, you know, and I, I, I applaud the Schiller Institute and, and Helga LaRouche and all the effort that you guys are doing, trying to get the message out. Uh, and you probably have a better listenership in China and Russia and elsewhere. And somehow we need to get your voice louder here in the United States. <laughs> well, of course, the argument by them is that is that America is good and China and Russia are bad because we're a democracy and they're yeah. an autocracy. In right. fact, as you know, uh, Biden just held the so-called democracy summit, uh, trying to create a, a alliance of countries who were deemed by the US, of course, to be, quote, democratic against yeah. that are authoritarian. I, in fact, the question of what democracy is, is, uh, is a very interesting and important discussion. And the Chinese have been right. talking about that. What would, how would you talk about democracy in the US compared to democracy in China? Well, I think in the US, we are very flexible as to what democracy really is. If you're if you're a country on our side, you have democracy. If you're a <laughs> if you're against us, you have no democracy. Now, what is what is the example our, of our democracy? Let me count the ways. Our democracy is where the two parties bicker, nitpick, and get nothing done. We don't look at the global issue, the, the, the bigger issues of what's good for our country. We don't move on infrastructure. We don't invest on healthcare. We don't really care much about education that we talk about. We care about who gets elected. We care about how do we maneuver the election mechanism so that the other side has a disadvantage and we have the advantage. We have people that violate the constitution and the rule of law and they're still walking free and we don't seem to be able to do anything about it. These are some examples of democracy as we practice in America. We also have um, democracy exercised in that if you live in the ghetto and if you're black, you don't have a chance. You're presumed guilty of everything we accuse you of and it's up to you to prove uh, proven our innocence. And that goes, by the way, for the Chinese American scientists in this country, and we can talk about that uh, a little bit later. But democracy has become a very handy dandy label to blacken anybody that we don't like and to praise our, to pat ourselves on the back because we are supposed to be a democracy. Now, I don't, I can't explain fully what China means by democracy. But I do know 
that they respect the human life of every person in their country. They have spent great amount of effort alleviating poverty for their, for their remote poor, for the villages that live in some of the worst situations and worst conditions. Admittedly, it may be propaganda film, <clears throat> but I, I saw some of Xi Jinping walking up these muddy trails to visit remote villages to find out how they're living and how they're doing. Do they have enough to eat? Do they have warm clothes to wear? Do they have enough blankets? And, and so on and so forth. And they would he would hold little village conversations with the people and ask them how, you know, what problems do they have and what issues do they have that they, they would like to bring up. This, this is almost unheard of here. Here, when a politician comes to the visit and have a town hall meeting, they usually have their hand out because they're looking for political donations. This whole country's election is run on money. And if you're not in the position to write a big check, your voice really doesn't count. Now, so there's a very different way of practicing and exercising democracy. And it's, we're just kidding ourselves in this country that we all have the one, one man, one vote uh, type of equality. Before I ask you more about the persecution of the Chinese and Chinese Americans, I, let me ask about uh, President Biden, who, as I'm sure you know, at this moment, the crisis over Ukraine is, is extremely intense. Yeah. And yet uh, they're, they're, they have set up meetings between the US and uh, Putin and the representatives of, of Russia to attempt to deal with this crisis, to, to uh, guarantee some security for Russia. And in fact, it was announced today that Biden is going to talk to uh, Putin tomorrow. Yeah. He also has had several long discussions with Xi Jinping. Yeah. Do, do you see this president as having the intent or the ability to try to override this extreme anti-Russia, anti-China hysteria within the press and the Congress and even within his own administration? I'm doubtful that he could because the situation um, that Russia and the US is in didn't happen overnight. I mean, the NATO organization, for example, has been pushing and pushing, uh, collecting members eastward, if you will, from Western Europe to the neighboring countries of, um, of Russia. And of course, this threatens Russia and Putin. And finally, Putin had to do something that will Catch the um, catch the attention of the West, and the way he did that was well, it's actually from uh, I, I I learned this from one of the uh, analysts from China. It, what Putin did is really in accordance with the Sun Tzu's art of war. You negotiate from 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 power and from strength. And, and by amassing Russian troops on the border of Ukraine, it's sending a very unequivocal message, which is that if we don't get 
the reasonable settlement of cease and desist of encroachment by the West, we have the upper hand. We can go in and take the Eastern Ukraine at will and there's nothing you can do about it. And that's, that's the fact. I think that's what the um, uh, Pentagon realizes and understands. So whether Biden can, uh, can effectively settle anything remains to be seen because what Putin really wants is very, very he's, he's made it very clear. He basically says, hey, NATO, you need to sign a document that, ba that basically says you will cease and desist and not continue to expand your sphere of influence. And, you know, and I think maybe some of the uh, EU countries would, would be willing to go along, but NATO obviously is controlled by the US and whether that's gonna happen remains to be seen. Very dangerous. Um, so on, on the uh, persecution, um, you know that we've been very involved in documenting and, and opposing uh, the effort by the Department of Justice and the, and the FBI starting uh, actually a long time ago, but especially under Christopher Wray and, and the Trump administration and continuing today, Christopher yeah. Wray is still the head of the FBI, in basically uh, accusing anybody who is Chinese working in America or Chinese Americans who have any contact with China are there, thereby automatically suspected of being spies. And there have been some atrocious operations attacking leading scientists, helping to solve cancer and other diseases who've been accused of spies, lost their jobs, lost their, their laboratories and so forth. And I know you've been an outspoken opponent of this. So I'd like you just to say what you think needs to be said about that whole crisis in America today. Yeah, well, I <clears throat> Again, for Chinese Americans or ethnic Chinese, and to some extent Asians, because our FBI and our government officials, they don't always, they cannot always tell the difference between one Chinese and another Asian. So we're all being tarred. And the system of justice, when as applied to us, is, is justice on its head. You are guilty until you're proven until you prove are proven innocent. It's very very difficult to prove a negative, uh, as as we all know. And the when the federal when the federal prosecutor comes after you, they have infinite resources in supporting them, and, and you can be driven to poverty from the all of the the defense bills. And frequently the, the hapless Chinese scientists have to, you know, basically have to cop a plea just to get out from under the pressure and get out from the, the financial ruin that they face. This go all this actually goes all the way back to J. Edgar Hoover. The bias against Chinese started from him. We had um, we had an expert quote unquote Chinese expert, now long retired now from FBI, who basically says, if you see three Chinese at a cocktail party, they're probably talking about spot, the espionage and the intelligence that they've gathered. And these, you know, just any three Chinese or maybe Asians um, 
could be guilty of spying. And this guy used to be the carpool buddy of Robert Hansen. They used to go to work together. Robert Hansen, if you don't, if you don't remember or don't know, was indeed the biggest double agent for the Soviet Union before he was finally caught and sent to jail. Uh, he never smelled a rat sitting next to, to Robert Hansen, but he could see three Chinese standing on the corner as spy, spying for China. He also promulgated this grains of sand theory of espionage. What is grains of sand? Well, we have hundreds of thousands of Chinese in this country and they are loyal to China. They gather any little tidbits of information and they send it to Beijing. The implication is that there's a supercomputer in the, in the basement of some building in Beijing, cranking through all this little intelligence through this computer and out the other end comes the design of a multi-head missile. Yeah. That's this kind of logic this is the kind of logic that we are facing from the FBI and from the, uh, the um, Department of Justice. And, and there are even FBI agents that came right out and admitted in the testimony that they, that they lied because they had to uh, fill their quota of cases against the Chinese Americans. I think the long-term implication <clears throat> of this kind of bias is that we are going to lose. And the reason is because the greatest source of STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math graduates are coming from China. And it's, it's proven through history that they have made tremendous contributions to the American technology, American science, and also in as American professors and teachers raising the next generation of students. So we are cutting our own nose to spite our face because we are discouraging them from coming. And they are, they are indeed not as, not as enthusiastic about coming to the US and more or more of them, I saw as much as 80% of the Chinese students that came in and graduate are now going back to China because it's just too damn risky for them to stay here and work here. Hmm. And, and all the time, the US also is, is criticizing China for their going out to the rest of the world with their development policy, what they learned in transforming their, their country from poverty to, to one of the greatest uh, economies in, in history, really. Uh, they are taking to the rest of the world through the Belt and Road uh, initiative, which you've you've uh, praised uh, often uh, for uh, trying to convey to other poor countries that the the uh, trick to getting out of poverty is building infrastructure uh, and actually creating the conditions for uh, a modern industrial country. Uh, so you can only think that the attacks on the Belt and Road are coming from those who want to keep the world poor and divided yes. and to to keep China down. Right. So uh, here in the US, our infrastructure is a disaster. We just passed a small infrastructure bill, which will barely dent uh, the deficit we have. Uh, what, what can we do to get the US to accept 
Chinese investment in US infrastructure, which they wanted to do before this hysteria began. And even more important, get the US to recognize that it's in their own interest to work with China on developing the, the real physical economies of nations in Africa and Asia and South America. So yeah, my, my, I think Mike, you, 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 you made an important summary statement, which is what can we do to convince the American people it's in our interest to work with China? And, and there are plenty of examples that of, of the benefit that can accrue. For example, the Hamilton Bridge, which is the extension of George W. George Washington Bridge that goes over East River. That bridge was refurbished and rebuilt by a Chinese construction company that was actually based in New Jersey. And that came within budget and on time. And it employed American workers. Yeah, some the management came from the China side, but the workers, the employment, it was a good employment for the American workers. And that happened a few years ago now. I, I wrote about it maybe two years ago. Hmm. Another example, the subway cars in Boston, Chicago, Philadelphia, LA, are being replaced by Chinese subway cars. And these are coming from China partially in kits and are assembled right now. The plant, I think, is well, there's one outside in Springfield, Massachusetts, and there may be another one being built outside of Chicago. And the idea was the state of the art design and the heart, the siding, and some of the important keys are being provided by China. But the inside air conditioning, some of the other units and so on are being provided locally sourced in the US. So that the local content of these cars are about 60% local content, meaning US content or more than 60%. So it does qualify according to the, the rules of satisfying being made locally it's a win-win situation because these subway cars are state-of-the-art, they're quieter, they're safer, and they're more economic. Their prices are lower than uh, third-party sources. In point of fact, in the United States, we no longer have the capability of making these uh, uh, subway cars. So we have to outsource. The other outsources are more expensive than, than the Chinese source. So when the first car were delivered in Boston, there was a big hullabaloo, it was a source of celebration. And the next target the Chinese was looking at was New York and Washington. And then the politicians got into the act and they said, no, 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 we can't do that because the Chinese could put in all these listening bugs in the subway car. And, and spy on us while the cars are rolling into work. You know, can you imagine you and I having a conversation? Hey, Mike, how are the Yankees doing? You know, you think they're going to win the pennant this year? And that goes to Beijing as, as espionage. How about that? <laughs> well, um, 
One, I think the primary issue which exemplifies why the world has to work together is the out of control pandemic, this COVID uh, pandemic. Um, Helga, as I, I think you probably know, Helga Zepp-LaRouche and the former US Surgeon General in the United States, Dr. Joycelyn Elders, have formed something they call the Committee on the Coincidence of Opposites, which is an idea taken from the 15th century genius, uh, Nicholas of Cusa, who was largely responsible for the Renaissance in Europe, uh, where he, he said to overcome conflicts of religion or ethnicity or, or nations, you have to think of the higher principle of the common needs and, and, and desires of man as a whole. Uh, and if we are going to cure this pandemic, obviously it cannot be cured unless it's cured everywhere, as yeah. we've seen by these uh, variants coming back to bite us because we've refused to build modern health in, in most countries. And we've even hoarded the vaccines from, from Africa and elsewhere. So what they're calling for is that we have to build a modern health system in every, every country in the world, which would include yeah. not just the hospitals and doctors, but clean water and electricity, which uh, many countries have none. Yeah. So this is certainly the kind of aim that the Belt and Road Initiative is targeting. Do you think this health issue is, is a means whereby we can overcome this division and geopolitics and get the world to come together for, uh, for the common aims of mankind? Well, what, whether we get to that point that you just summarized will require a uh, significant change in attitude in the United States. In China, people seem to naturally understand what's for greater good is more important than my individual dratters, my individual exercise, quote unquote, of freedom. But that's not the case here in the US. We even have people that object to vaccination because it's infringement on his personal freedom. If we have the inability to recognize what is greater good in our country, we will have even greater difficulty recognizing what is greater good in solving the problem on a worldwide global basis. So, you know, we're lucky in a sense that we are um, richly endowed in water compared to many other places in the world. But we don't, so therefore it's hard for us to appreciate the importance of water elsewhere, whether it's in Africa or Asia or, or, or elsewhere. We are so concerned and care about where we come down on these issues. We don't even think about the, the fact that these issues affect all of us and not just in our little circle, little world of the United States. So, the, so I, I think um, the, the, the uh, task ahead is a monumental one for, for, the, for the organization, unfortunately. Maybe we should look back to Ben Franklin, who, as you probably know, was a great admirer of Confucius. Yeah. and of the meritocracy system in China and wanted to, 
to uh, bring this idea of the common good or the general welfare as our constitution calls it uh, into the US in building the United States. But as you said, uh, this has been lost in the process of so-called libertarian individual freedom. Right, it's way overdone. You think we can teach Confucius to the American people? Well, we're throwing them out. You know, these Confucius Institutes are being thrown out rather than being welcome at, uh, at this point. And again, it's a, it's a, it's a, they're being victimized by the biases that we, we have here. I mean, we, we have this senator from Arkansas that says, hey, we can't let the Chinese in unless they want to come to study Shakespeare. And, and, and I added, well, they could go to Oxford and Cambridge to study Shakespeare, not coming to University of Arkansas. Maybe they can study how to be um, a top football team in the AP poll in Arkansas. <laughs> so are there other, other issues you'd like to address to our, our audience and to the readers of EIR? Well, Mike, it's a, it's a really a nice having this conversation. I just feel so disappointed on the path that the United States is taking at this point. We, we seem to be insatiable in wanting to pick fights. Um, and we seem to need a common adversary to justify our military budgets. And our, there's the only one issue that has by overwhelming bipartisan support in this country, and that is increasing the military budget. And you have to ask, the American people needs to ask, why do we need an increased military budget? We can blow the world apart many times over with what we've got. And what's the point? of intimidating everybody else instead of, and by intimidation, we think that we have other countries on our side. Actually, most countries fear us, but do not like us and do not admire what we're doing. I just wish, and that's why I'm so glad we're having this conversation. I just wish that we can help turn some people around and we can encourage not just thought leaders, but politicians to understand what's at stake and start to speak out on what would be sensible and in the interest of our country. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate this, uh, this discussion. I think it, uh, has, it, sh it should have ramifications throughout our country and hopefully around the world that, that we can change America. Uh, and so I thank you again for doing our interview. It's been a pleasure, Mike. Thank you for inviting me.